hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Long before missing and murdered Indigenous women were a hashtag, they were invisible victims, ignored by police, by the media, and by the government. I'm not talking about the Harper government, by the way. I'm talking about the late 60s. That's when women started to disappear from the Highway of Tears in British Columbia. Dozens vanished from the 800-kilometer highway over the years. But it wasn't until 2002 when a white woman named Nicole Hoare disappeared, that the Globe and Mail, the Edmonton Journal, and the Vancouver Sun began to report on this. In other cases, the murders of Indigenous women may have gone unreported because they fell within another media blind spot. Violence against sex workers was not even covered in the Canadian press until 1975. Of course, most missing and murdered Indigenous women are not sex trade workers, but even when these cases are covered by the media, they are not covered the same as stories about non-Indigenous women. There was a study by Kristen Gilchrist titled Newsworthy Victims, which compared how the press covered three missing white women with how the press covered three missing Aboriginal women. All of the women in the study, all six of them, fit into sort of a girl-next-door, pure woman kind of a stereotype. Yet the white women received six times as much media coverage as the First Nations women. And Gilchrist found that the coverage was much more sympathetic and humanizing when talking about white victims than when talking about Aboriginal women. The lives of the Indigenous women, Gilchrist wrote, were not similarly celebrated by the press, and their deaths were not equally grieved. Now, I know all of this because of a piece written by journalist Karen Pugliese, the director of News and Current Affairs at APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network. You may remember Karen. She has been a guest on the show before. She will be on again in a moment to talk about the possibility that the media has finally woken up and started to pay attention to the fact that one out of every four murder victims in Canada is an Indigenous woman. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jack Bangay, Drew Thompson, 
Jason Bryden, Ian, Tom, Emily Donaldson, Katrina Onstad, Derek Ma, and Evram Dellen. Evram, why did you decide to be awesome? Because Canada Land doesn't always get it right, but by doing what you do, it brings up everyone's game. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by Giftogram. Guys, you need to do this now. Time is running out. Giftogram makes gift giving stupid easy. Three clicks. One click to download the app. Go to the app store. Download it onto your iOS device. Second click is to choose a gift. They have curated a tasteful list of tested gifts. They have them at every price point. They have services, spa treatments. They have chocolates. They have objects and items. They have wonderful gifts. They have something to suit everybody you need to buy a gift for. And the third click is you just click on the name of the person you want to give the gift to. You don't enter in their shipping address. You don't have to do anything like that. It all happens automatically. As soon as you buy someone a gift, they get a little message telling them that you bought them a gift. Then they tell Giftogram where to send that gift. Maybe they want it sent to their work. Maybe they want it sent to their home. It's up to them. You're out of the picture. You've done your part. The gift will arrive in three to five days. That's what they tell you. The gifts that I ordered showed up in two days. And I asked Jason Reed, the founder of Giftogram, if that couldn't even be shaved down a little bit, I mean, what? how could you possibly do better than two days? How could you do same-day delivery? What if you did it via drone? I think we just added our first drone onto Giftogram, but we haven't figured out the drone delivery system, if that's where you're going. That is where I was going. I wanted to know if a drone could deliver my gift. They can't, but you can buy a drone via Giftogram, so there's that. This is the part to pay attention to. Giftogram is giving you $20. 
$20 towards your first gift purchase. If you buy a $22 gift, it'll cost you $2. That is how confident they are that listeners of this podcast will use Giftogram again after their first purchase. Go to the iOS app store, download Giftogram right now, and use the promo code CANADALAND to get $20 for free from Giftogram. Do it. Karen, in recent weeks, we've seen major work, uh, reports in the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail and McLean's investigations analysis all about missing and murdered Indigenous women. That comes shortly after the CBC published the results of a year-long investigation into missing and murdered Indigenous women. And yet that follows decades of arguably media indifference. How does it feel to have been following this for so many years to see suddenly such an interest from the mainstream media? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's good. Um, I think that the investigation by the star was really good work and I'm glad that they're doing it. I, you know, I guess my thoughts on it is like, there, there was something about the report that I think really got my attention was why they did it. If you remember, I guess it was about a year ago now, uh, the RCMP had released a report where they had looked for the first time at police files on uh, missing and murdered Aboriginal women to come up with their own numbers. And they came up with, the the standard number had been 500 missing and murdered women, and they came up with a new number of uh, 1,100 and some missing and murdered women. So there was the number there. And in their report, they also made the case that they were solving most of the cases. So they kind of, I, I have a feeling they're pushing it to be a good news story about, about the police. And then the Minister of Indian Affairs at the time went into a meeting with some chiefs and said, well, you know, and that was Bernard Valcourt. Uh, he went and he said, well, you know, it's mostly Indigenous men doing this. So what the STAR was doing with that work um, is they're looking at the cases compared to what was said or found by the RCMP report about who who the perpetrators are, and I, I just find it kind of interesting. Like I, I think it's good that they did it because I think there was a little bit of an intention to almost dismiss it. Like if you were saying it, there, there was sort of like that unspoken word that if it was Aboriginal men doing this to Aboriginal women, well, it's not really the government's business. There's nothing to see here. Whereas if it's non-native men doing it to Aboriginal women then there's a need for government to do something. I I, I personally think that it should be about the victims and not about the perpetrators, right? But I I, I think that's what's interesting about, like there's this kind of like little argument happening behind all this reportage about, you know, the value of women and, you know, whether or not the government should step in. I, I, I find that. I find that interesting. I think it's really interesting to look at the way that this went from totally ignored a non-story to, you know, a movement to make it a story. And then this, you know, this narrative, or maybe it's a counter-narrative that you point out, that not only the RCMP, but also, as you mentioned, Bernard Valcourt, government, and, and Stephen Harper, the RCMP finally talking about it, but saying, well... You know, there's a strong nexus to family violence. That's what the RCMP said in these cases. And Valcourt saying that it, these tragedies come down to a lack of respect 
of indigenous women by indigenous men on reserves. And there's sort of two things to look at there that the media has finally been taking apart. One is, is that true? Is this a problem within indigenous communities and therefore the rest of us? Well, I guess, is it true is the first question. And then second of all, even if that is the case, which it looks like there's a strong argument that that is not simply the case, was so what? Does that mean we don't have to care? Exactly. Exactly. I think that's the the point that I'm trying to make is like the, uh, I guess there's a narrative, like if it's not happening to our women and our children, then it's sort of not our business. And I think family violence is everybody's business. And even if you look um, at the Star Report, they say, well, okay, now we've identified or they've identified through their cases. And and they, they weren't looking at the same cases that the police are looking at, right? So there's still there's still a big question mark there. There's still a big we don't know who's committing the violence and we should probably find out if we're going to do something about it. But there there is that link exactly as you're pointing out about whether or not we care about it. And I, I think also to your point just about like the media not caring and suddenly caring. You and I were uh, private messaging a bit and I'd sent you an article that I guess I'd written a few years ago. And we're sort of looking at like missing and murdered women and who got attention and who didn't get attention in the article. And I mean, several people have written about this, but it's like before like the 1980s, if there was the murder of a sex trade worker that was only covered, you know, like sex trade workers stabbed to death and it was kind of covered in this like, what a shame this is happening in our neighborhood. Can't you get these people out of here? You know, like that was the kind of coverage. There was no empathy for these women. And I think because a number, not all, but a certain number of Aboriginal women who've gone murdered, been missing, or in the sex trade, they're devalued because of that as well. Yeah, your article really shocked me, to tell you the truth. And I thought that I had been paying attention to this. And I realized in reading this sort of, um, you know, you were building on the work and summarizing and aggregating the work of, of uh, academics and people who've been looking at media treatment of missing and murdered indigenous women for many years. First of all, I've been following this for a couple of years, you know, maybe maybe shortly before it became a hashtag. But this is a 40-year-long movement story, the circumstance of women going missing and, and what we're going to do about it. This is decades. And that was the first thing that took me back. The, the second thing is really looking at what is exposed when finally the media does pay attention and you compare how the media pays attention to so-called girl-next-door disappearances and murders. So you get headlines like, Jenny, we love you, and waiting for Alicia, versus RCMP identifies woman's remains. And it feels like you, you, you almost couldn't think of a starker contrast of racism. Yeah. Yeah, Adriana Rolson uh, and uh, Chris, Kristen Gilchrist had done some work on that. Like they were trying to look at cases where Aboriginal women have disappeared and non-Native women have disappeared. Well, basically Caucasian women, right? Middle class Caucasian women and sort of compare those cases. And um, they found that in the headlines. They found that with Caucasian women, there would often be front page news, large pictures, you know, there'd be details of their lives explored, what they'd done, what their hopes were, what their dreams were. And when it was Native women, they would be further in the paper, may or may not be a picture. They'd be described as shy or nice. Like, the coverage is very different. Yeah, and, and you write about uh, the way that we sort of are recreating certain depictions and stereotypes 
that uh, the fallen woman narrative. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting math, I think, to look at the way editorial decisions get formed. And I know that it's all about when an editor uh, or a producer has to think about how can I get my audience to relate to this or what will my audience relate to or care? And you're sort of making judgments about who who will be considered a relatable or sympathetic human being, which I guess like plugs into a larger question of like who who do we see the humanity of? Who do we consider to be more or less human than than, than others? Well, you know, you're saying that they they put some thought into it. I, I would argue that for years they put no thought into it. And that was the issue. This was really, I mean, when you look at newsrooms, I mean, nowadays newsrooms are like much, like at least have much more women in it, in them. But, you know, back in the days, you're looking at the the 70s. This was the purview of the Caucasian middle class male. So that point of view, how they saw the world is kind of reflected in newspapers. So I don't think they they thought about it. Um, They just couldn't relate to um, the women who they were covering and, you know, may have had their own their own stereotypes or biases. But, you know, it's something that Gilchrist points out, too. It's like when something would happen to a non-Native woman, you know, like or, or somebody from their neighborhood, it's like, oh, my God, they're on the streets. They're after our women, our children. And you'd have that knee-jerk reaction. This is somebody else's women, somebody else's children. It's that sense of otherness as well. It's on these two sides of, of the spectrum of news sensationalism, news coverage, where there's nothing that will overtake. I mean, just to broaden this to sort of a U.S. cable news perspective, when somebody's, you know, a middle class Caucasian wife goes missing, that's the kind of thing that gets 24 hour coverage. It's sort of a news event. It gets branded. And then you can have on the other side of it, hundreds, over a thousand women lumped together. They're one story. You know, you don't that that kind of individualistic attention doesn't happen at all. When we finally do pay attention, it's only sort of the aggregate mass of people because it's been, I mean, decades of of, of murder. Well, you know, the, the first time I saw coverage of a missing or murdered Aboriginal woman that was sort of equivalent was with Loretta Saunders. Uh, she's the Inu girl who was murdered. She's from Labrador. She was uh, in Halifax. Uh, she was murdered, I think, in February 2014 uh, by her roommates. And there were a couple of things, I think, about that case. I think, first of all, there had been a shift in the media where they sort of realized that they had to cover these things a bit more. And this is, you know, this is the same year that you get uh, Renelle Harper and you get Tina Fontaine. But uh, Loranda Saunders started, started out the year. And she was, uh, like, in university. She was young. She was also like fair skinned, and I don't know if that anything had to do with that. She was she's quite beautiful, and she had also been working on a thesis on missing and murdered women, which you know was just the irony of everything. And then it happened to her. The other things that happened that I think made it easy for media to cover is that the case moved along quickly. The police were able to track down the suspects, the court cases. It all happened relatively quickly, but there was like expansive. Uh, coverage of her, and I, I had never seen it before. And I was not the only person who noticed this. There was quite a lot of discussion about it in our newsroom. There was quite a lot of discussion about it on social media sites. That for the first time, an Aboriginal woman was sort of treated in the news the way that a non-Aboriginal woman, you know, Caucasian woman. I shouldn't just say non-Aboriginal, because there are, um, you know, black women who are not given the same status when they're missing or murdered either. It, it, it really is like Caucasian middle-class 
woman with that sort of pure, you know, like uh, the the minute the women aren't, um, you know, the minute the woman, if she's Caucasian, she's a sex trade worker, um, she's not going to get the same attention either. It's really a syndrome, the Colton States, uh, missing white woman syndrome, that you're a middle class white woman, you get a certain kind of press. And Loretta Saunders was the first time I'd seen that. Why does it matter? I mean, it's an interesting conversation about uh, how society's racism or values or biases gets reflected in headlines. But when we're talking about unsolved murders, when we're talking about people who are missing and might be alive, when we're talking about the certainty that these murders are going to keep happening, there's an urgency to talk about action. And uh, what relationship have we seen between whether the press covers this stuff or not and whether it stops happening? Well, you know what? We, we don't know. I, I mean, I think all those, like, that's a great question. I think it's something that, like, I can't answer. But, like, it just kind of pushes to, for, for those people who want an inquiry, I think this is what they're trying to get at. You know, to the individual families, it matters because this is how people remember. They get tips. They get leads from time to time. And they're hoping that the media do some coverage of their case so that they can try to get people to bring forth answers. So like on an individual case level, that's why it matters. On a larger case level, it matters because Aboriginal women are walking around feeling like they could be next. And we don't know why it's happening to us and we just want it to stop. And so the families who have been putting a lot of pressure on media to change the way that they cover things. You know, really that's that's what they want, is they want, you know, to, for, their, for their daughters to be safe. You write about um, this book by a journalist, uh, Stevie Cameron, who credits a few reporters at the Vancouver Sun for raising the profile of missing women, creating enough public empathy, and that led directly according to Stevie Cameron, to the Vancouver Police Department actually investigating, and that led to Robert Pickton's arrest. It seems like, uh, first of all, do you buy that narrative? Is that how that serial killer finally was arrested and investigated? There is a lot of pressure, and like I think, I think we as media need to not blow our own horns so much, I think, on this one. Uh, it, it does bother me a little bit when I see media taking credit for things that properly belong in the families. Nobody was going to change the way they were covering that story or even start to cover that story if it hadn't been for the families pushing, pushing, pushing. So uh, to to their credit, media finally listened. Um, and it is true that the Vancouver Sun did. They, they did an article where they put all the faces of the missing and murdered women and really got the message from the families out to the public. So they do deserve credit for that. But the, you know, the families were like advocating to government, to police, to media to get some movement. So I think the credit properly belongs with the families. I think that there's also, it's worth noting when you look at, uh, you know, the Globe and Mail's recent analysis, uh, where they are looking at the heightened rates at which serial killers target Indigenous women, there's probably some truth to the fact that because people don't care, these women are targeted because there's going to be less police scrutiny, media scrutiny on you if you're looking for a victim. That, I think, makes a very clear case for why these stories need more attention. Yeah, well, that's been the argument that the Native Women's Association of Canada has been making is that because our women aren't valued, people can get away with it. So, like, that's sort of the serial killer killer argument. I think there's a lot of argument for, you know, in the cases where the perpetrator is known to the victim, 
there are some probably some issues, you know, coming out of residential schools that we should care about. Um, you know, like investigating, we need probably shelters and ways for women to escape family violence. So uh, there's that as well. I think, you know, we did, uh, APTN did an article recently on uh, children in the child welfare system being a gateway into uh, prostitution and the sex trade in Winnipeg. So you have a lot of vulnerable young kids being taken away from their homes, moved into cities, introduced by the lifestyle that they're brought into to drugs and the sex trade and that's putting them in a very vulnerable position there's no shortage of issues to look at so what do we i mean i think the danger is if we start to do a lot more coverage of uh the many cases in which it is first nation on first nation violence and murder how do we avoid perpetuating the same clichés and stereotypes I hear what you're saying that, you know, you have to look at the effect of the, the, the child care system. You have to look at the effect of the residential school system. Where does that end? You have to look at the effect of colonialism. I mean, this is not the stuff that uh, – I mean, the academy does a better job perhaps at looking at it through that lens than the media does. And there's such a reluctance in this country to have that conversation and just sort of in a – 24-hour news cycle, people don't know how to write that story. You know, I I think they, (laughs) I I think that they can write that story. I mean, there's a lot of complicated things that media has figured out how to cover. I think you just have to have the will of how to cover it. And and you're right, academia does a better job. Like, again, like you said, you, you looked at the article. I was surveying some academic work that had been done, and it's clear that they're miles ahead in this discussion than the media is. The media is like not caught up to where academics have looked at this issue. Um, but, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't have forums. I mean, you do long form interviews. That's a good forum to raise these discussions. I think, you, you know, you can do in-depth analysis. You can dedicate a page of the newspaper to this once in a while. You could do a fifth estate if you're CBC. I mean, really, that's that's the stuff that we try to do at APTN. I see no reason why other media can't do it. I think the media cycle tends to work when things finally do get noticed. You know, this wasn't getting noticed. It's getting noticed. Something is done about it, and then we move on. So residential schools was something that bubbled up uh, to the media's attention. It got attention, and then we feel like, okay, there was there was truth and reconciliation. There was there there was a, a restitution for abuse victims, and then we can't do that story anymore. Like, what is the you know, as if that's the end of it, and. We have the MMIW hashtag, and we had, and the, we have a new government that, that is taking it seriously. There will be an inquiry, and then, and then what? Well, hopefully, hopefully results. I, I think that's what the families are really counting on. Like when we talk to the families, we get this, we get this kind of relief. It's like, oh, finally, we're going to get this inquiry, and then they sit there and they go, God, what if nothing happens? What if they have the inquiry, it comes up with all the recommendations, and nothing happens? Doesn't that sound like what happens like almost every time? It's a real possibility. It almost feels like that's what Harper was warning, was like, this is pointless. Uh, let, you know, let, let's just solve the crimes. What's the inquiry going to show us? And the Globe, for all the work they're doing in, in investigating these murders, the, the opinion pages are still filled with, you know, Jeffrey Simpson, the, the inquiry will deliver disappointment, not justice. Globe editorial, 
that uh, liber- what liberals got wrong about the inquiry in their first step. So we sort of have this sort of uh, a raised eyebrow skepticism towards the point of an inquiry being echoed throughout the media, even as we're seeing the faces and the names and the stories of missing and murdered women getting more attention than ever before. Yeah, I think, you know, and I, I think that's probably very reflective of what's happening with the families as well. I mean, they're hopeful. They're um, excited. They're finally getting something, but they're not... You know, I mean, they, they've been around the bend, you know, like, I, I mean, they, they've been through ups and downs. I, I mean, the resilience of these families that they've kept on fighting is just fantastic. And I think, like, really, this looks like it's going to go ahead. It's going to come out with recommendations. And I don't think those families are going to disappear. I think that they've been a really strong and powerful voice. They've survived cuts to, like, you know, NWAC used to have the Sisters and Spirits program. And that was, the funding for that was cut. And the families that had been involved in that program went and started Facebook sites and stayed in touch and became a social movement. So they're not a program anymore and they're not a policy. They're a social movement of people who are seeking justice. And I don't think that they're going to give up that easily. I think that they're going to want to see those recommendations carried through. I mean, you bring up the the communities themselves that existed, pre-existed, and that have formed around these crimes and this tragedy, this epidemic. And I wonder how much, like, what is the lens that we can put on this in terms of how much of this is just about getting the rest of society to know about something that has always been known within First Nation communities? How much does it matter who's writing these stories? And, and who is this media for? Because, you know, at APTN, you are doing both things. We had in our prior conversation about whether or not your job is to do news for First Nation communities or to just tell the rest of the country what's up and to be give, giving uh, from an Indigenous perspective. How much do those dynamics matter when you're talking about something like this? Well, I, um, do you mean from our point of view or do you mean from, like, you know, the families trying to get it into mainstream media? I mean, the, the whole thing, like, like it, it's sort of like, on the one hand, you want to see everyone take notice of something that is so important. And, you know, this is the an issue that you have been following for years, and you've been in, in dialogue with communities for whom it's a, of, of incredible importance. It must be a strange mixture of gratification to see mainstream Canada caring, and yet... Well, you know, welcome to the party. Like, like this is where have you been this whole time? And, 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 and is your attention meaningful and is it enduring? Is, is it about the message finally reaching mainstream Canada or is this going to be sort of a crystallizing, mobilizing moment where everything kind of comes together and we try to look for solutions? Yeah, there, there's a little bit of um, and I, I don't think it's just Aboriginal. It's not just APTN. It's not just Aboriginal media. I think it's the families as well that sit there and say, well, finally, somebody's paying attention. And, you know, for it depends on the family, too, because some of the families have successfully been able to go down and really push and get you know, pretty good coverage on their cases and other ones, you know, have not been able to, for whatever reason, whether it's the media or whether they just don't have the knowledge. I mean, they have to go and sell their stories to the media, right? Like they're going in and pitching, you know, there's an anniversary coming up, media like anniversaries. So if I go there on the anniversary of the death, they might do a story of my daughter. I mean, they've had to coach themselves in how to go and pitch the story of their missing child to the media in order to get some attention. So, I mean, that's all, is, is my missing child media friendly? Is, you know, you brought up some of the dynamics before. I mean, yes, fair skin might matter. The attractiveness of, uh, you know, the relatability. Oh, do they ever touch a drug? And suddenly, oh, now nah, we're going to pass on that one. It's almost like a clash of cultures when it comes to different approaches to storytelling. Well, I think it, I, I, I think it's something that 
you know, as APTN, we just picked up on quickly and realized it was something that we had to do, that we were not going to go out and tell the story that a woman went missing or went murdered. And the only thing we were going to say about her is that she might have been a sex trade worker. I mean, we would do stories and we would talk about, you know, how much she was loved, how she stayed in contact with her sister, how she wrote poetry, you know, what her aspirations were, what what was the context of where she ended up and, you know, what she was trying to accomplish with her life and like just humanize people. And I mean, that's sort of an easy sell to us. I think it was really a lot harder for families to go and, you know, like push mainstream media to say, don't just report that my daughter got into the sex trade. She was a human being. And like I said, they had to, I mean, some of them, like, frankly, they went through hell trying to get coverage of their daughter. So what, what does it all mean? You know, at this point, it's happening. Canadians are aware of it. I think, you know, there, there's action. I don't think without the mainstream media picking it up, there would be an inquiry right now. If it had only been APTN reporting on this and only been Aboriginal media, there wouldn't be an inquiry right now. So, yeah, they might, like as you said, be a little late to the party, but, you know, they showed up. I wonder if there isn't. Uh, I, I, I hate these these terms. I mean, both because they're cliches and because they, they so often disappoint. But a, a, a turning point when you look at the cover of Chatelaine and Ashley Collingbull is on the cover, and and you know Tanya Tagak, and like, are, is it possible that not every story that hits the mainstream media about Indigenous people will be d- depressing and, and <laughs> affirming of you know, like the worst thoughts that people have. That there might be a, some actual attention. Oh, these are people who do wonderful things and it, it can be fun to talk about some of the things that they're doing and who they are. Yeah, well, I mean, we've got a Aboriginal woman justice minister, Go Jody. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I figured that she'd make it into cabinet. I, I didn't know she was going to get that position. So, I mean, we, we've got a few people who are really great role models out there. I, I mean, I, I think what you're, you're sort of relating to is that, like, it's, we still have this, like, hideous portrayal in, you know, of Native women in the media because when it bleeds, it leads. And we're bleeding. <laughs> in your piece, when you were quoting uh, the work by uh, Yasmin Jawani, she, she said that Aboriginal women are so often portrayed as, quote, abject victims of poverty and, quote, inept drug-addicted mothers who did not seem to be capable of maternal feeling. These are awful descriptions, and yet I know what she's talking about. Yeah, when you, when you look through the newspapers, um, as she did, and you're sitting there and saying, okay, well, when Aboriginal women are covered, what are people actually writing about them? This is what she found. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole, I mean, that's a whole other ball of wax is, um, you know, can you ever get newspapers to, uh, you, you know, first of all, I think a lot of cynical journalists don't like to do good news stories anyway, but yeah, it, it, I, I think it's a whole other ball of wax is like, like, cause now we're moving from just getting coverage of missing and murdered Aboriginal women to getting a fair representation of all that Aboriginal people are fairly reflected in the media. And quite frankly, if you read the 1996 report from the Royal Commission, that's why they recommended that Aboriginal people have their own media, including their own Aboriginal 
television network because the mainstream media was not doing a good job of that. This could put you out of work if suddenly everybody starts to I, – I, somehow I don't see it happening. <laughs> I, I don't see you guys being made redundant by this this recent interest that's being taken. You know, so much of this kind of falls into this place that's sort of fuzzy for people of social sciences, but there's almost like a ghoulish experiment you can run in one or two years' time – if we look at the statistics of how many indigenous women are murdered, how many indigenous women go missing, if there's a sharp drop off, then we know that the increased attention mattered. Yeah, that will that could be true. Um, I think social scientists will want to like put all sorts of conditions and frames around that, but that could be true. There could be other things happening in the community that you know affect that. Like if there's um, suddenly more uh, programming going into the communities could be more social awareness amongst Aboriginal women of safe and unsafe places where they should and shouldn't be. What about when reporters actually do show up? Do you think that there's a reluctance on the part of people in these communities to trust the media, like to trust them to tell their stories? Well, you know what? It's one of the things that mainstream reporters have said as to reasons why they think Aboriginal victims of violence or missing and murdered women don't get as much attention. They, they will say that they have problems, they approach the families, and the families don't want to talk to them. Um, I don't know why the families don't want to talk to them, but they do say that that's one of the problems. So it could be mistrust. So what can be done about that? What can be done to build trust? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question, because I'll say, um, this is my second round at APTN. I was first there from 2000 to th- 2006. And we were starting up at that time, and I had not been to many communities other than my own. And just because I was Aboriginal, or saying that I was at APTN, which there was a great deal of hope for, but no record of yet, because we were new, communities didn't know what to do with us either. But what I I did have in my back pocket was um, I had been, I'd also gone back to do an MA in history. And I had done uh, Aboriginal history and I'd done my thesis in Aboriginal history. And when I went into the communities, I made sure that I knew a little something about them. So when they would sit there and they would bring up, well, you know, back in the 60s, this happened and they would start giving me some context. I'd be able to tell them, yes, I know something about that. Not saying I know the whole thing, but I didn't come in here with no clue who you are. And that really helped me break into communities that didn't know who Karen was, wasn't too sure about what this APTN was going to be about, or if it was going to be better or worse than other news media. And I really think that that's uh, what mainstream reporters need to do. There's any number of books out there that they could be reading. They should be taking degrees if they're in school, or at least classes in the Aboriginal history, so that they come at it without they come at it with some background i mean you know what it's a little bit like sometimes it's a little bit like you get these mainstream reporters showing up and it's like that old joke where a young person says hey did you know paul mccartney was in a band before wings that, that's kind of you know you kind of groan and you kind of feel sometimes that that's how uh mainstream people are coming into our communities just completely unprepared and they get it wrong and they get it wrong a lot and that's what creates the mistrust. Am I hopeful that there's a new relationship between Aboriginal peoples and the media in Canada? I think it's a start. I don't think we're there yet. Okay, that was your Canada Land show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. 
we are on Twitter at CanadaLand. The show's webpage is canadalandshow.com. That's where you can sign up to Not Sorry, our weekly email newsletter. Our crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. Special thanks this week to Beverly Jacobs. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, please support it. Thank you.